Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to hear you. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. Welcome to those of you joining us online as well. We are going to talk about suffering and evil today. So my first question for you is, who's ready to suffer under my sermon? Uh For some of you, it'll be a little bit more painful than others. (laughs) I am sad to see this series go. I love wrestling with these questions, uh, dialoguing about them. It's a continual process for me because I think Uh, people out in the world today, we need to be able to have thoughtful conversations with them and not to win the debate, but to be winsome in the way that we approach things so that we can build a connection and allow God to work through that connection. That's been our heartbeat through the whole series. So I kicked us off with, uh, does God exist? And I think I said something like this, this has got to be one of the hardest one in the series. And then Trevor came up the next week and talked about, is the Bible really relevant for today? And he said something like this, this has got to be one of the hardest ones in the series. You see a trend? And then Stout came up last week and he was talking about purpose and meaning and he said, this has gotta be one of the hardest ones in the series. But let's just end the debate. I gotta talk about suffering and God and evil. Show of hands, this is the hardest one in the series. Yeah, the rest of you are dead to me. (laughs) Just kidding. Oh, so our work is cut out for us today. God be gracious to us and to me. Epicurus in the 300s put his trilemma like this, not a dilemma, but a trilemma. If God is unable to prevent evil, he's not all powerful. If God is unwilling to prevent evil, he's not all good. If God is both willing and able, then why does evil exist? That is our challenge today, and I'm going to get a little bit into the clouds because I feel like we have to have some thoughtful answers around that and deal with some heady stuff, and then I'm going to get down to a heart level because for many of us, it's not suffering out there. It is, and that's challenging to see and to hear about, but for, for most of us, it's a personal thing. There's something going on. In fact, Bart Ehrman He was one of the leading New Testament scholars in the country. He went through Moody Bible Institute. He went through Wheaton. He got his uh, PhD at Princeton, an incredibly brilliant person. He began to teach classes on why suffering and how do we deal with it and the issues called theodicy. How does a good God allow these things to happen? And through the course of about uh, seven or 10 years, he began to lose his faith. And finally, it was this. I cannot look out at the world and see so much pain and suffering and evil and still believe in the God of the Bible. He's still one of the leading New Testament scholars as an atheist in this country. This is an important question to talk about. It's an important question because we look out at the world and we see beauty everywhere. I did a wedding last night. We see the beauty of two people committing their lives to each other, of love of music, of poetry, of story, of song. We see the beauty of the birth of a child, of children's laughter, of family being together. We see the beauty in an ice cream cone. If you can't find beauty in an ice cream cone, we have emergency counselors standing by right after the service. You need to talk to someone. But we look out at the world, and at the same time that we see beauty, we see incredible ugliness. We see cancer, COVID, death, loss, pain, struggling, psychological challenges, spiritual abandonment. We, we live in a world east of Eden where everyone who exists has this thing called existence pain, which simply means this, to be alive is to have pain. And we feel that, and you know that. 
It's an important question because we see the loveliness of the world and we see the ugliness of the world. And what do we do with that? We who claim that there is a God of hope and has a plan for this world. What do we do with that? So I'd like to outline my talk in three questions. Why is there suffering and evil in the world? Why did this suffering and evil happen to me? So kind of like out there, 20,000 foot, and then down more at home, the personal relationship to it. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, what is God doing about suffering and evil? What is God up to? And does that give us any type of thing to follow? So first, why is there suffering and evil in the world? One of the main reasons, uh, worldview-wise, that I'm a Christian is because I think the Christian worldview makes the most sense of the world we experience. I don't think it's absolutely airtight and uh, we have all of the answers and we can stand with certainty, but I think that the world that God made and the word that God spoke are very congruent and they can get us far along with the questions that we have. And so one of the things that the Christian worldview says is that suffering and evil are very real. They're very real. It's a very real pain. It's a very real problem. Uh, and, and one of the challenges is that there's a lot of other stories that say, no, 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 suffering and evil are not real. In fact, one of the stories that's gaining more popularity here in the West says, no, suffering and evil is just an illusion. In fact, if you do enough interior work and mental work, you can reach a place of enlightenment. Pain is just an illusion and you will transcend pain altogether. There are other stories that say suffering and evil don't really exist. One of the most, one of the stories that is um, at odds the most with the Christian worldview is the atheistic, naturalistic worldview. I had a little chart made for us to walk through this. Uh, it's more so for me. Uh, and if you get lost in this, it's not you, it's me. You know, one of those good breakup lines. <laughs> uh, uh, and Lauren, Lauren does a great job. I just give her content and she says, here, let me make it pretty. And I'm like, thank you so much. It is pretty. Theism is this idea that there is a supernatural world, that something other than what you can taste, touch, see, smell, or hear exists. Something other than just the material world exists. And we believe that there's a God exists, and we believe that there is real suffering and evil. We believe that because of what's called the moral argument. The moral argument briefly is this. There is a right and there is a wrong. You wish the rest of the sermon was that brief. We believe that because we have this intuitive sense of no, we look out the world and say that shouldn't happen, that shouldn't be this way. We see evil done to people or natural disaster and we say the world is messed up, it's not as it should be. And so we believe that there's suffering and evil because of the moral argument. Now, the atheistic worldview goes something like this. In fact, one of the reasons people reject God goes something like this. Look out at all the suffering and evil in the world. How in the world can you see that and still believe in a good and powerful God? Therefore, this is all evidence to reject the notion of a good and powerful God. The only challenge with that is that the naturalistic worldview doesn't have a moral argument. There's no moral argument for them. So they say, whatever I do is right, whatever you do is right, there's no moral obligation. That thing's oppressive. So there is no such thing as black and white. It's all gray, and whatever you choose to do is fine, and so on and so forth. So the reality is, there is no such thing as suffering and evil. In fact, if the, if, if the naturalistic worldview, the atheistic naturalistic worldview wants to be consistent, it has to say something like this. Violence, people who have power and who oppress other people, People who take power and do violence to other people, that is not suffering and evil. That is actually simply 
the way things have to go for the natural process of survival of the fittest, where the power come into being. That's just the world working itself out. You see? So it's incredibly inconsistent. It's incredibly inconsistent. And that's why, that's why I show you this, because the conclusion is this. The presence of suffering and evil in the world is not necessarily enough evidence to reject the idea of God. I would argue, in fact, it's more evidence to consider that there is a good and powerful God who wants to do something about it. Every part has and needs a counterpart. And one of the, one of the approaches that Christianity has often had to why is there suffering and evil in the world is this conversation of free will. Genesis 2, 15 through 17 says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So what we have here is what theologians often call a fall. It's less like a trip and fall and more like a high-handed rebellion. What you have is a good, benevolent king of the universe who creates this wonderful, beautiful world and puts humanity, a wonderful, beautiful uh, creation, creatures of the sixth day, puts us into this earth and says, this is your playground. I've created this for your delight and your pleasure, food and rest and, and all at leisure and all of these wonderful things and mountains and oceans and relationships. This is yours. It's yours. Enjoy it. Enjoy it to the nth degree. But of this thing, this one, this one small thing, don't do it. And so what we have is humanity. It's what the Bible calls a high-handed rebellion, saying, I refuse to submit to this all-powerful, all-good, benevolent king of the universe. I refuse to do life your way. I'm gonna do life my way. And mankind chose to rebel against God and enter in sin and death and evil so we have what's called moral evil. Moral evil is basically this. If you want to choose to do harm to your spouse, your kids, your neighbor, a stranger, you can choose to do that. You're free to do that. It's moral evil. If I want to choose, if I go outside and I look at the kids in our neighborhood and I'm like, I really like that kid's bike, I can push him down and take his bike. Right? Well, maybe not post-COVID because I'm a little weaker, but I would get somebody to help me. We could push him down and take his bike. You know what I'm saying? That's moral evil. If we want to choose to do something, we can. But there's also a thing called natural evil. Headaches, migraines, sickness, cancer. Natural evil also covers things like hurricanes, natural disasters. We look out at the world and we think, oh, something's wrong with all of creation. It's not just humanity, it's all of creation. What is that? There's also something called cosmic evil. The Bible presents this picture of a powerful force that is opposed to God and opposed to anything good and beautiful. Principalities and powers, Satan, if you will. Moral evil, natural evil, cosmic evil. And for many, many years, Christians have had the approach of the reason this is about is because God didn't want just robotic love. He could have restrained it all and he could have said, uh, you have to do this. And he could have programmed us where we don't do any type of thing like that. But would it have really been love? And so God creates and says, you're free. You're free to choose. And we did. And we still choose. Why is there suffering and evil in the world? Secondly, and this is often probably more where people live because if you're not in the ivory tower and the clouds wrestling with that stuff, it's usually on a more personal level. Pain wakes us up. And this question pops into our mind. Why did this suffering and evil happen to me? Why did it happen to me? It's a normal question. It's a, it's a knee-jerk question. 
we have a, a friend that was really influential, a little bit older friends that was really influential in our life when we um, transitioned into Missouri. And uh, we just FaceTimed with her the other day. And it, it's possibly the last time we'll get to, to fa- FaceTime. Um, they were battling cancer a couple years ago and then thought it was gone. And then through a series of events just in the last few months, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, all over the body, in the brain, liver, lungs, organs, everywhere. And we look at that, and they look at that, and the natural question, you probably ask this question is, why me? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did we lose this loved one? Why did the marriage not work out? Why did we lose our career? Why me? It's a normal question, but to be honest, it can be a very unhelpful question because it starts off in a place that sets us on a path that is often an unhelpful path, and I would like to show you why I think that way. Let's go to the book of Job. Often people go to the book of Job when they want to talk about suffering, and it's a good place to go. Uh, Job chapter two, Job went through a great deal of suffering and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what he suffered in a minute and then what his friends do and how they try to wrestle with this question, why did this happen? So it says this in 2, 11 through 13, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, those are some names. I mean, today we get names like Chad, what happened to Zophar? That's the name. I, in fact, I encourage all you young people about to be engaged or about to have kids. Why don't you seriously consider Zophar? Bring it back for the team. I see you, Zophar. <laughs> Where were we? Ah, they heard all about the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. Keyword for Job. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. I'll tell you why in a minute. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, before we break our arms, Pat and Job's friends on the back, just hold on a minute because we'll get to them in a second. It seems like they start off really good, but then they start to try to answer why this stuff happened. And I'm gonna show you why we don't get to ask that question. What happened to Job though? In a very short amount of time, Job suffered a great amount of pain. One of my greatest fears as a parent is losing a child. We have four children, so that's a lot of fear, if you hear what I'm saying. My greatest fears as a parent is losing a child. Job lost all his children in one foul swoop, like a, like a car accident, and all his children were together and they're gone. He also lost all of his finances. Stock market crashed, He lost everything, gone, one day. He also was diagnosed with this skin disease, this sickness called boils, these legions that would kind of boil up on your skin and and open up and, and, and make you hard to recognize. And Job is sitting down after all of this loss and all of this pain and all of this suffering, and he's sitting down by himself and he's scraping away the sores. That's why his friends, when they see him, they're like, he doesn't even look like him. And that's why they start to weep and they start to tear their clothes and what great pain this person must be in. And they sit in silence and they get it right just for a moment. But then, if you know anything about the book of Job, it's about a 38 chapter poem 
of why did this happen to me? And then three friends' responses of here's why this happened to you. And when we ask the question why, here's why I believe it's misguided, because we're asking origin and interpretation. We're asking origin. Well, where did this come from? Did it come from God? Did it come from Satan? Did it come from me? Like, what's the origin of this thing? Is it good? Is it bad? What do I do with it? I don't even know because maybe I sinned and maybe I messed up and maybe I wasn't obedient enough or maybe I didn't pray enough or maybe I didn't give enough or maybe I didn't do enough for God and now this sickness has come upon me and you see, we start to ask origin questions and it's just very unhelpful. Or we ask interpretation questions. We start to try to interpret, well, here's why this thing happened to you. It was so that. Let me show you how dangerous that can be. Look at Job chapter eight, verses one through six. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, Job has been lamenting, why did this happen? He says, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, do you see this? And, And up until now, there's been no mention of his children doing anything wrong. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Do you see what they're doing? Here's the origin. Uh, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? What has happened to you, Job, was what was meant to happen to you. Do you see that? And then here's the interpretation. When your children sinned, they died. And the danger of asking why and starting to assume we can get that answer is that we think we can interpret the origin and they think that we interpret the meaning of why this thing happened. Have another chart. You wanna see it? It's a little bit easier than the first one, right? All right, here we go. Here's our other chart. We are limited Creatures. That's a good thing, by the way. Being limited and finite and needing rest and food and play and leisure and community and people and relationships, that's all pre-fall. That's just what it means to be human. And that's a really, really good thing. But there is a very distinct line between the wisdom and knowledge and the governance of the creator and the limited, finite mind of the creature. And anytime we start to ask, why did this happen? We start to transgress the line between creator and creature. You see, humility means this. It means I accept my limitations, limitations as a creature. It means I accept my finiteness, my dependency on God and others. That's what humility is. It, it's a normal thing to ask the question, but we don't get the answer. God in his infinite wisdom chooses not to give it to us. I was talking to someone right after the service and and first service and they said, so you're saying there's not a reason? And I said, no, 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 I'm not saying there's not a reason. I'm saying we don't usually get the reason. That's for God's mind. It's not for our mind. We don't get the why. Let me illustrate. I was teaching on this sometime back. I'm fascinated by this whole subject and I was teaching on this to a college ministry sometime back and I began to teach on this and I said, you know, we don't get the why. It's a normal question, but it's often an unhelpful question. So we need to start to ask a different question to get a better answer. We don't get the why. And I was mentoring a guy. We played basketball together. We hung out together. And he came up to me after the service and he was visibly upset. And he just said, I disagree with you. And I said, that's debatable. And I said, what do you disagree with? And he said, well, my, I wasn't a Christian. 
And my best friend died in a car accident so many years ago. And after he died in a car accident, I became a Christian. And I said, I hear what you're saying, but that's not the why. That's the what. We gotta be really careful because you're essentially saying that this had to happen in order for me to become a Christian. And that's just not the God I know. Evil didn't have to happen so that God could bring good of it. We work with what? We don't get to work with why. That's off limits for us. And here's the reality that we may not like to accept in our limitations. And this is from Pastor Emma, who uh, just gave this really great line. She said, suffering carries a message of mystery. Suffering carries a message of mystery. We just don't know. And there's just some things we can't say. And that's okay. We have to accept our limitations. Every pain that befalls us, we don't get to know, well, why did this happen? It's because God sees in holes and we see in parts. We see a very limited part of our story in relationship to the whole narrative. A very limited view of why we go through this and why we go through that and all of the above, but God sees the whole thing fitting together somehow. I think a more helpful question is what do we do with the suffering that comes our way? What do we do with the pain that comes our way? And in fact, the Bible has things to say about that. In Romans 8, it says that God brings good from evil, that even the greatest evil that Satan or, or someone could concoct against you that God can actually take those ashes and build it back together and bring something beautiful and good that he will use in this world. Look at the story of Joseph. We all know this to be true. Joseph got sold into slavery from, from his brothers. He got down into Potiphar's prison. He, got, he, he, he was stuck there for how many years? And then he rises to second in command of Egypt. Now, those were evil things that happened to him. And yet God takes this and somehow, mysteriously, God weaves this divine, beautiful story from it. And he brings good from evil. Didn't say he causes it. It says he brings good from it. We learn from suffering. We learn from it. Pain is one of the greatest motivators to change. And if you're anything like me, you just don't usually choose change. We have to be motivated by it. When it's not working out for us or it's not working out in the marriage or whatever it is, we get motivated by pain. Well, I gotta, I gotta change some things. James chapter one says that uh, suffering grows spiritual endurance. So what do we do? We let it work its course. We let it run its race. We don't resist it. We open our arms up and as hard as it is, our hearts bleed and we wear our bleeding hearts on our sleeve and say, all right, I don't know why this is happening, but I know what to do. I can steward it well and God's gonna use it to grow me and to become a deeper and wider and more loving and gracious person. You've seen this true in your own life. I remember one of the most difficult times in my life I was going through as early in college, and I didn't have a physical loss or anything like that, but I was experiencing what I would call psychological spiritual torment. It just seemed like I was going crazy. You could call it spiritual warfare. You could call it whatever you want. And I had some, some people who tried to come comfort me, and they were a little bit like Job's friends, right? Job calls his friends miserable comforters, by the way. Like, you guys did a terrible job. You did great, great start, and then it just went south from there. Um, and I had people try to give me really cheap answers and they only lasted for a little bit. And, and, and my dilemma lasted probably about 16 to 18 months. And there's a reason they call it blinding pain because you don't feel like you can see anything. You don't feel like you can hear anything. All of your equilibrium that you walked with 
A week before, it's all gone. You're completely destabilized. And I didn't hear God. I didn't see God. I didn't feel God. I don't know anything about that. But I kept praying. I kept reading. I kept fighting. I kept going forward. And then throughout this time, the only way I can describe it is brick by brick, God began to build me back up again, began to build my faith, began to build my stability, began to build my sanity. And I began to get out of this. And I look back at that and I say, well, I wouldn't choose that. But definitely it made me a deeper person, a wider person. I feel like I understand God's presence and love in new and different ways because of that. This is one of the most challenging things to accept, but we know it's true deep in our bones that Corinthians 12 says that God works in and through our weaknesses and suffering and pain, not in spite of them. In and through them, not in spite of them. So why, do, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Why did it happen to me? And then lastly, what's God doing about suffering and evil in the world? What is he up to? Can we say anything helpful? I think we can. One of the first things that we have to say about what God is doing about suffering and evil in the world is this. First, he subjects himself to it. He subjects himself to it. The Bible creates a picture counter to the Roman gods at the time of the New Testament, counter to the ancient Near Eastern gods at the time of the Old Testament, that God is not somewhere aloof demanding sacrifices because he's a hungry God and he needs it because he's gonna pour out rain and all the humanity is, has to give him these sacrifices. No, he's the God who provides and he's the God who reigns and he's the benevolent God. He creates a picture that he is bound to his creation and he's bound to his humanity in great love. So when we suffer, he suffers. This is also pre-Jesus, by the way. Check out Genesis 6. God is wounded that the world is broken. But Christ came to show us the fullness of God. So look at this picture that Isaiah 53 shows us of what God is like. It says this, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. You know that betrayal, that despising? He was despised and we esteemed him not. Who is that? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, cursed, afflicted. I don't know about you, but when you think about Jesus, do you think about that? The Jesus who weeps constantly? You see, sometimes we get this picture of this God on the throne and he's just, he looks out at the world and he's so stoic. I wonder if we can imagine a world that the Bible shows us where God has a deep, rich, complex, emotional life where he can somehow simultaneously rejoice over all the beauty and simultaneously grieve and be wounded at all the ugliness and evil. God is a God who is wounded, is wounded on our behalf. You see, this passage, what's really interesting about this passage is it takes place in um, the book of Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah was a prophet and he prophesied about the Messiah to come. And in this section, it's on the suffering servant. In the Orthodox Jewish mindset, they struggled to think about Jesus in this passage because guess what? When you're expecting a Messiah, someone to come and rescue you, to overthrow things and fix all things, you're expecting someone strong and victorious and powerful. You're not expecting someone to come and suffer and be beaten and be bloody and be rejected. That's why it's difficult to think about Jesus as one who gains victory 
through suffering. If that's anything for us, it's our path as well. And God is a God who weeps with us. Every pain, every rejection. He is the wounded God. Jesus experienced this in his earthly life and he focusedly experienced this on the cross. Physical pain, unimaginable physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain. Have you ever noticed how Jesus is a bit different than the martyrs we read about? The martyrs usually go to their death like heroes, like, hey, we're gonna face this. There's no fear. It's just courage. And this thing is gonna spread like wildfire. Well, Jesus is wrestling with death before he dies. Like, um, if we can do this another way, that'd be great. Like, take this cup of suffering. You remember that in the garden. He's actually wrestling with this thing called death and the fear and the psychological turmoil of it. And yet, he still goes to death. And there he experiences probably the most painful, the alienation of relationship with the Father and the Spirit. An abomination. The triune God separated now. And he experiences what we all experience because we live east of Eden, this alienation from the Father and the Spirit. And that's why he cries out in Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Jeff read earlier, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't forsake the Father because of pain, but the pain didn't make him feel forsaken. It's possible to live in that place. God subjected himself to it. What else is God doing about it? What is God doing about pain and evil in the world? He's healing it. He's healing it. You remember in Genesis 3, when the high-handed rebellion takes place, what's one of the first things that God does? Because now Adam and Eve realize they're naked, and it's not just a physical nakedness. It's a spiritual exposure. Now there's guilt. Now there's fear. Now there's shame. What does he do? He covers them. He covers them. And then he goes to work setting about fixing the problem of evil. In fact, the crucifixion of Jesus is the victory, the victory over Satan and death and sin and evil. And we await the culmination of that. He is healing it. This is one of my favorite passages in in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses one through three. You remember that Revelation is a bookend of the Bible. You got Genesis, and you remember the tree, knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. And listen to this, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Sound familiar? bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. And I personally think that's gonna take quite a bit of time because there's been a lot of tears throughout the course of history. My favorite story, you probably know, is Lord of the Rings. It wouldn't be a sermon unless I inserted it somewhere. Uh, In this series, I've done it twice, but in Lord of the Rings, it was written by Tolkien, who was a believer. 
Um, Gandalf, they're on this journey to take the ring to Mordor. Gandalf has to fight a demon from the underworld and he sacrifices his life to fight the demon from the underworld to protect the company so that they can continue on their journey. They think he's dead and they carry this incredible grief and burden with them. What they don't know is that he didn't die in this battle and he comes back to them later in the story, not as Gandalf the Grey, but as Gandalf the White and he reveals himself to them. And the hobbits are so surprised that Sam says, oh, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. In fact, I kind of thought we were dead. And he begins to talk about what is going on? What does this resurrection, if you will, mean? And, and Samwise Gamgee is astonished and he says this, does this mean that everything sad is going to come untrue? Does this mean that everything sad is going to come untrue? And Tolkien was a believer and I think his story emphatically answers it along with the scripture. Yes, it is. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And God's going to undo all the wrongs and the evil and the suffering that everyone has experienced. There is a trajectory to the story and that's where it's headed. Uh, Pastor Trevor had the opportunity to sit down in an interview and we're gonna make the whole interview available to you um, as a resource, but we're, we're gonna shorten it just for just a few moments. And he sat down with Greg Boyd. I don't know if you know Greg Boyd. He is an author, he is a pastor, he's a communicator. He's also adjunct faculty at a seminary and he's done a lot of thinking about suffering and evil. And so Pastor Trevor had the opportunity to sit down with him and said, hey, what do you do with this on a personal level? Like how do we approach this? Listen to what he had to say. So when you encounter someone, someone who, let's say, is really wrestling with their faith and they're wrestling in terms of this whole suffering conversation, what is your first approach to having a conversation with that individual? Well, first, uh, Trevor, I, I, if there's a person who's in pain, um, uh, I put it like this, that, that whoever's suffering the nightmare gets to choose the theology. Hmm. Uh, and, and so if a person's suffering and their theology is working for them, I, I wouldn't touch that. I, I, it, they need to get through the Christ. Maybe later on down the road, it'll be time to ask questions. You know, uh, but, but you know, I've, I've come across people who think that they were raped and they thought that was God's will. Uh, and somehow it gave them reassurance. Now, I can't put that together in my head, but I'm not the one in the crisis. And so if that's working for you, uh, then I'm going to leave that alone. And, and sometimes silence is just so important. Empathize. Uh, enter into solidarity with the pain and set aside whatever intellectual you know, conflicts there might be. Later on down the road, it may be appropriate to say, you know, let's look at that theology. But it, it, especially if the theology is not working for them, and more often than not, I find with Christians that when they hit real suffering, hmm. often that's when their theology comes most in, into, well, that's when it's much yeah. harder to believe that God ordained this. Yeah. Um, it's easy, you know, this is why I think it's so important that we, when we're thinking about the problem of evil, we think about it authentically. Uh, think about an actual instance of absolute nightmarish evil because we have to be able to do our theology at the gates of hell. And the way I sometimes put it is this, any theology that I couldn't speak on the parameters of uh, the mass burial at Auschwitz, where mm. thousands of children have just been gassed and are now being buried, if I can't utter it there, then I should never utter it. Wow. Because that's real. And so I want to do a theology, not out of a comfortable oasis that I have up yeah. here in my Western culture, but enter into the worst that the world has to offer. Wow. And that's how we have to you know, think about the problem of people and think about 
God. It, it, it forces it to be authentic with us. <clears throat> so it's not just an intellectual question. We, we need to feel this, mm. the gravitas of, of this as we enter into this. And uh, uh, yeah, and then that gives authenticity to our, our, our thing. Otherwise, I've seen it so often when people are like, and God ordains everything, it all you know, for the better, and he, he's still on his throne, and, and the little kid gets killed because he chased the ball out and the thing, and they say, well, you know, they, God must have needed him more up in heaven than, than down here. And, and see, this is what causes a lot of people to lose their faith. It's, it's like, what kind of Abba Father would do that? Ordain the suffering of these kind of children. It just, uh, you know, it, to, a lot of people, it's just an utter disbelief. Well, Greg, thank you for your time and being able to share with us a little bit. This is super helpful as we continue our series, Debatable. We have that full interview, which I, I think is really helpful. And Greg is a, a beautiful person and wonderful to do that with us. We'll have the link up and you can find it later uh, this week as well. And I love what he said because this is the challenge of Job's friends. They can't utter that type of theology at the gates of hell. It's a bumper sticker theology. It sticks just for a little while. And it feels good sometimes when we try to utter it to people like, well, here's why you lost this person or here's why the sickness happened to you. It may feel good to us because we're trying to bring comfort, but it's poison to the recipient. And some of us who are not in crisis right now, we need to do some serious rethinking of how to enter into suffering well with the other because God came into our world, not to point it out and judge it as John 3 says, but to rescue us because of his great love for us. And maybe silence is the best way to convey solidarity. But God is not a God who spectates. He enters into our messiness and he invites us to do the same. Stephen Covey tells this story. There's a man's true story, a man on a subway in New York. He gets on the subway early in the morning. He's got his four kids with him, and they're on the subway, and everyone's kind of quiet. They're waking up, but they're on their morning commute. They're looking at the newspapers or listening to their music and drinking their coffee, and his kids are pretty rowdy. They're making a lot of noise, and it goes on and on for some time. And finally, you know, the, the, the commuters are kind of eyeballing each other. Finally, someone says to him, sir, perhaps you could say something to your children and restore order here. The man looks at him and says, I know I should say something, but we just came from the hospital where their mother died, and I don't know what to say. We're not a people who sit back and spectate. We're a people who enter in and suffer with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. That's why judging others is so anti-Christ. Instead of worrying about what they're doing with their behavior or what they're failing to do with their behavior, we should be considering what pain might they be carrying? What deep suffering might they be going through? What is in their story that's marked them for life and they are doing the best that they can with the cards they've been dealt? And we enter into the suffering and we become like Christ in those moments. I leave you with this, Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? On the one hand, nothing. His death was completely perfect and enough to atone for the sin of the world. But on the other hand, it has yet to be sacrificially extended 
to the here and now, to people we rub shoulders with every day. When we steward suffering well, and we don't judge, and we consider the pain that people are in, we enter into solidarity, solidarity, and we suffer with them. And maybe then, and only then, we are extending the crucifixion that Christ paid so that they could have new life. Let's pray together. Father, we don't understand you. We don't understand all your ways. They're mysterious. Your thoughts are not ours. They're higher than ours. Your ways are not ours. They're higher than ours. And often we make the mistake of thinking that we know. Remind us that there are things we can know, but there is a lot that we can't know. Let us be a humble people, accepting our limitations. Let us be an open people, embracing mystery and letting go of certainty. Let us be a people who steward suffering well, who start to grapple with, well, what do we need to do to respond well to this pain? And how do we respond well by your grace? Teach us that. Give us discernment. Let us know when to speak. Let us know when to be silent and give us the discipline for both. Help us, God. Some people in this room are carrying very, very heavy burdens. And maybe it's only them that know. Maybe they need to share with a trusted friend. Father, you're wise. And we know that your goodness is healing things now and will heal things in the end. May we trust that. May we hope for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.